Hi, my name is Joyce Bosen, creator and founder of Trauma Recovery Yoga, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Well, Joyce, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here today. This is such a treat for me personally because the work that you're doing is so needed and so incredible. And our city is so blessed to have you doing what you're doing based right here in Las Vegas. So if we could, just by way of introduction, share a little bit about what you're doing. Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for having me. I love the title of this podcast. I love the work that you're doing. I love the fellowship that you are um, involved in, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. So, um, yeah, my name is Joyce, and I'm born and raised in Las Vegas. And what we do here is um, I have a couple of organizations and projects. One is called Trauma Recovery Yoga. It's a nonprofit that I um, support and endorse now. It's run by an executive director and they're working in spaces between the Veterans Administration to um, 13 Title I schools to uh, the Resiliency Center, the biggest strong resiliency center for the recovery um, of Route 91. And in a lot of other spaces because trauma is so broad and it's a spectrum. And um, so what they do there is they bring trauma-informed uh, trauma recovery yoga teachers into the spaces and offer classes in um, for the recovery and the um, stockpile, honestly, of resilience. So working with first responders and and things like that. So that's one of the projects. The other project is I, I, I am a trainer and I have a training company called the Tri Method. And we train people in the method that we, that those teachers are bringing into those spaces. So we train the teachers so that we can have a consistent level of, uh, of um, instruction and a very defined method so that people know what they're receiving every time they go to a trauma recovery yoga class. It's predictable, which is important for recovery or resilience. And uh, we have a 20 hour training that is certified or um, CEU certified for therapists, social workers, counselors, working on psychologists now, nurses, and we are um, training people all over the world now. We were doing that pre-COVID, but it kind of blew up during COVID because before we were traveling to cities and bringing this 20-hour training, which we really enjoyed doing, but it's kind of exhausting. And we thought we'd never adapted to Zoom and now we're doing it through Zoom. So we may be on a 20-hour training with people from Las Vegas and from um, Iraq. You know, and we actually are doing work in Iraq with um, orphans uh, from that were enslaved by ISIS, um, and now are are working with our teachers to recover their resilience through trauma recovery yoga in Iraq. So uh, it's mind blowing. I don't even understand it. I don't. I don't even understand how it all happened. But that's what we're doing. That is absolutely incredible. And for those that are listening and don't have the video, 
Joyce is in a Choose Loving Kindness t-shirt that is phenomenal. It's, it's incredible. It just speaks to who she is. So I just had to tell you guys listening what's happening here. So Joyce, I just want to talk about what trauma is. A lot of people have heard that term, but don't necessarily have a working definition of what it means, or perhaps their definition is too finite. How would you describe trauma? Um, yeah, I agree. I think that um, people think that they haven't experienced trauma because they're not a vet or a police officer or something like that. But trauma, I, my definition of trauma, right? Trauma is personal and trauma is on a spectrum, right? So trauma is anything that takes your body out of homeostasis and puts it into fight or flight in my definition, so that you feel the effects of trauma physically and emotionally. And that can be anything from losing a job, a relationship, a child, a limb. Um, it, usually, it, it, it usually encompasses, includes something of some sort of loss, right? Even if that is the loss of the feeling of safety in the world, right? Or um, so that we feel um, kind of taking off center and mm -hmm. into a traumatized state, right? And trauma can be um, one shock trauma, like a, you know, like an impact, a sudden loss or something, you know, uh, a trauma like that, or it can be a, a long-term toxic stress where you're living in a relationship or in a situation or working in one that um, like even first responders can have that level of, of trauma for so long that it becomes very toxic and their body gets, again, stuck in that fight or flight and their mind as well. I love that you indicate that stuck in the fight or flight area there because finding, finding that, that balance of just being at peace is, is hard. But what happens I've noticed is people become so accustomed to being on edge that that feels normal and they don't recognize, you know what, I am actually having a trauma response. You mentioned the first responders who have that extended experience. All of us right now living through COVID have this extended traumatic experience happening. Does, does your method address these type of traumas? Absolutely. So when we talk to first responders or people that may not recognize that they are that their body's in a trauma response and they say things like, you know, I just go from zero to 50 in like two seconds. And I go, that's kids. You're never at 50. I mean, you're never at zero. You're at 40. And you're going from 40 to 50, you know? And I actually get that from Dr. Nicole Anders. It's part of her lecture in our training when she talks about the psychology of trauma and its effect on us, right? And that hypervigilance, that quick um, response, that agitation is part of being in that heightened sense of, sense of awareness, mm -hmm. right? So when I talk to first responders and, and people that may be experiencing that or, or post-combat vets or even uh, just people who have been through military training, you know, because it's part of their training to be hypervigilant of their surroundings, right? And so Max, one of our teachers said, he, he taught at a base one time at, in, in the South, and he said to them, you know, your training has you resonating up here um, and, and, and being hypervigilant. And that's completely appropriate when you're on the job and you're on the battlefield. But it's not appropriate when you're at your kid's soccer game or at dinner with your wife. And I want to show you how 
to move from one way of being to the other. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's part of what the method does is because what happens, you know, there's a lot of myths around the word yoga. And so people who are in high, high stress jobs like that, you know, they need ER doctors, you know, you need to be on it. You need to treat and move on. You need to be on your game. You need to be awake. Well, they implied more than once that, well, I can't be all zenned out. Um, and Let's I- talk about yoga really quick since you brought that up. What does yoga actually mean? Well, yoga, the word yoga is to yoke, which means to bring together the mind, the body, and the emotions, right? To yoke, to bring everything together. That's what that word means, right? And, but there's so many, it's, it's really stigmatized by um, everything from social media to TV about who can do it and who cannot, right? And it is literally for everyone. Um, uh, yoga was created as a way to release energy from the body to calm the mind. So yoga is the practice before the meditation. It is just to rid the body of excess energy. So all of those beautiful postures that people are showing off on Instagram and God bless them, good for them. I don't do that kind of yoga. Okay. That's not what trauma recovery yoga does. Um, what trauma recovery yoga is very personal and 100% based in choice. So you may sit down and do nothing but breathe and listen through a whole hour practice of trauma recovery yoga, or you can move quickly or you can move slowly, right? But you make your choices. So it's your yoga, your rules, your way. And choice is a really big part of the recovery of resilience because trauma feels like choice was taken. So to take it back is empowerment and helps with our resilience. Yeah. Trauma feels like choice was taken. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a hard space to be in. And I think for so many of us, we are in that position where whether it's the resistance to wearing masks, the <laughs> basically mindlessness of social distancing, being too close to each other in line at the store, our choices have really been taken. And that's a hard place for us to be in, particularly as Americans. We're so used to freedom and liberty and doing what we want, quote unquote, which that's a whole nother conversation. But when we have all of a sudden, really overnight, it seems, had to change and shift our entire way of life. You and I are having this conversation via Zoom instead of in person. That's a shift. For me as a social person who loves people, right, want to be in, in the presence and feel your energy, that could be considered a loss of choice. Mm -hmm. 100%, 100%. I, I mean, I totally agree with that. And we have to validate that and acknowledge that that's, that is the way it feels, but that is something that we cannot change, right? So we focus on what we can do. So, you know, the famous saying like, don't let what you cannot do stop you from seeing what you can do, right? And so what can we do? And in these spaces, we remind ourselves to focus on the good. So it's not as though we're trying to be like, hey, this is what's wrong and I need to get rid of it. We're saying this is what's right. And when we focus on that, this begins to wither. That's how it works. This is, this is all based in science and psychology, by the way. This is neural, um, neuroplasticity and, and um, you know, the habits of the mind and body working together that help us to create this focus, this new focus, right? Because the trauma has our focus without our permission. 
you know, and I understand that. So to direct people in through this method that we created, it was intentional that we were not only guiding people's mind, but their body and emotions simultaneously. So. I love it. And the focus piece for me is huge. I spend a lot of time just in, in observing my thoughts, taking time to, to think about what it is I'm thinking about and just take note. I don't try to control it or change it. Just like, what is it that is on my mind? And it's like clouds in the sky. They thoughts roll by. I'm like, oh, look at that one. That one's interesting. <laughs> you know, so yeah. it's that kind of thing. Like, hey, see ya. Yeah. See ya. Being yeah. able to choose, though, to, to shift focus. And today, instead of noticing the clouds, I'm going to look at the leaves on the tree. Today, I'm going to look at the birds that are flying by. Being able to choose that focus is something I, I have personally found to be very, very powerful and very freeing. Is that something that you incorporate into this method as well? 100%. And I love that you, the metaphor that you used is actually a visualization that I call out, like clouds in the sky drifting by or logs on a river. Notice those thoughts, but make no attachment to them. See them, acknowledge that they exist, and let them pass by, right? And that, because visualization, like you just so eloquently, uh, you know, shown, that visualization is key to connect the mind and the emotions and the body. All of those things can come together because the body believes what the mind sees. There's a movie called Heal, a documentary called Heal. And if you haven't seen it, take a look at it. It, is, it works on that same principle. And it's a very science-based idea. So I've said from the beginning, you know, yoga needs to incorporate, you know, much of yoga is based in visualization um, because the body does believe what the mind sees. And, and great athletes have known this for a really long time. Like they see the shot, they see the hole in one, they see the catch, you know, they see all those things. So if you can see your body releasing, if you can see those floating by, what happens, and I love yours because that's one of my favorite meditations, by the way, what happens, and Eckhart Tolle talks about this in A New Earth, is that then the, the space between the thoughts begins to expand. And that is where peace lives, right? It's not on the thought. It's not on changing the thought. It's not on replacing the thought. It's the space in between the thought. And with time, that space increases and increases and increases because meditation and visualization is all just a practice to get the mind into a new groove. Yeah. So I love that you did that. No, awesome. I guess we're, we're um, on the same wavelength, I suppose, yeah. here. Now, I do want to shift gears just a bit here and move to your TED Talk. So when I first saw your TED Talk, I was so deeply moved. I was like, you know what? I was not ready for this. I should have been in a different place. I should have been, you know, all of those things. Because the story that you told was so impactful. And the time that you took to set the scene, to, to share every aspect of what was happening, and to really draw the listener and viewer in, to your moment of trauma uh, was very, very powerful. So I wanted to share that that is, is something that many people would think is insurmountable. It's a mountain too high to climb, but you did it. So share a little bit about that. Well, you know, that was a, that was a very strategic um, moment for me when I did the TED and they, and they give you kind of like an idea of how they want you to do it. And I, so I intentionally didn't watch any TED Talks or anything because I didn't want to that to influence my way of being. And I wanted people, I knew that it was going to be difficult 
I warned you in the beginning, this may trigger people, but stay with me. We'll go somewhere from here. And to bring you into that, I, I wanted you to feel that fight or flight that I was in, right? So that I could take you out of it. So you could see anybody can do this. I'm not special. I'm not brilliant. I am obedient. That's who I am at the core. I am, uh, am in tune to what my body, mind, and emotions are asking for. And I, I listen, right? Everybody has the ability to do that. Everybody, right? But every, so many times there are so many other inter influences interfering with you know, that intuition and making us doubt it that we, we are then disobedient. And when we are disobedient, that internal voice gets louder or the circumstance around us gets louder. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Oprah says, Oprah says, God will whisper. And if you don't hear, he will yell. So don't make God yell, right? And I think God yelled at me. I think God yelled at me in my trauma. I was a and person. You talk, you talk about yelling back, so. I yelled back. Yes, I did. <laughs> now, I did. I, we've alluded to, you know, this traumatic event, but would you go ahead and share for our audience? So my, I was, um, um, my son was serving in the Navy in 2012, and uh, he, was, uh, he took two underways, which means he was on a ship for nine months um, back to back. So he was gone 18 months. He came back to the U.S. where he was stationed in um, Virginia, and he went out on his 22nd birthday on November 17th, 2012, and um, got very, very drunk with some other sailors, go figure full of testosterone and alcohol coming back to the base. He uh, got out of a move out of a cab that he was on his way back to his ship and um, jumped on a moving train. That train pulled him under and took his legs. And I then was called to his bedside and I was with him for nine days as he passed. So the things that I saw and smelled and felt and heard over those nine days, um, you know, were very traumatizing, you know, for, for lack of a better word. And within that year, uh, within the next 12 months, I isolated, uh, had suicidal ideation, became very dependent on Xanax and um, other narcotic drugs that were prescribed to me, and then started listening. I was diagnosed with PTSD. And um, I went back to yoga um, because I, I had uh, intuition saying, you can't do this to your surviving children and you're still here for a reason. That was the mantra that got me out of bed. You're still here for a reason. I didn't know what though, but I knew I, I was meant to live or I wouldn't be alive. <laughs> that was all I knew, right? And and so that was the, the trauma, that was the PTSD diagnosis, that was the beginning of TRI. Because after, um, after all the talk therapy, which I highly recommend, like talk is like the ultimate self-care. It's better than any massage, any spa treatment. Okay, it's a treat. And, and if you incorporate that with body work, like moving and breathing and mindfulness, you're working top down and bottom up and you're your recovery will be, you know, just turbo boosted. Whether you use trauma recovery yoga or you get on a spin bike, 
but you're doing it mindfully and breathing and visualizing and helping yourself, right? But my thing was I was working with traumatologists and psychologists at the VA and I was getting really great treatment as a gold star mom. And I, uh, I came to them and I said, I, you know, I want to try yoga. Um, I want, I want to get off these drugs. I can't be a zombie for my, my kids are still here. And I went back to yoga and I hated it. I was so pissed. I'm sorry if I cuss a little bit, but I was so mad. And I was, uh, because, uh, the regular yoga classes, which are great, all yoga is good yoga, but not all yoga is good for trauma, right? So when you're hypervigilant, when you're, um, not used to be you know isolated for a year and now you finally creep out and then they put you in a dark room with your back to the door and they play bob marley which was one of my son's favorite artists and then they're walking behind me and touching me to align me and they're doing all this out of the kindness of their heart but i am so shocked and so hyper vigilant and so upset that i was more triggered than treated in that class when i went back to my traumatologist i was like i have ideas now like i'm but I, I still think that yoga is a thing. Can you help me? So we picked apart my PTSD diagnosis, symptom by symptom. And, and I want to talk about that for just a moment because your PTSD stemmed from the loss of your child. It wasn't a bomb exploding that you were with. It wasn't that you had gone off to war. It was the loss of a loved one. So I just want to make sure the listening audience knows that when you lose someone, that is traumatic and you can have PTSD because of that. So thank you. Please continue. Yes. Yeah. And thank you because a lot of, um, a lot of even people who served in the military and they come back and they weren't shot or they weren't injured or they weren't killed. They were like, well, I'm fine, but my buddy, yeah, but you saw that happen to your buddy. You know, those images in your mind are, are something that makes your body react. You suddenly believe the world is in a safe place anymore everything changes in a moment you know that the world the life will never be the same again that's what you know for sure in that moment so i worked with these um very smart people with a bunch of letters after their name full disclosure like i say all the letters after my name are diagnosis these were you know very educated people that helped me and my husband who's also uh, brilliant in, in um, the ways of the mind and we created this method that um, helped to calm my central nervous system. So symptom by symptom out of the DSM, if this, then this, if this, then that, right? So if I can't, if, my, if I'm only breathing to here, let's try this breath, right? If I'm not sleeping, let's try inversions. If I'm not, and so we created something that worked really well for me, so much so that I was, when I saw other people on my team, uh, that was helping me get well, where they were like, wow, you really looking a lot better. What's going on? And I was like, well, I'm doing this yoga thing. And they were like, well, can you do that here? Can you do that with our amputee uh, vets? Can you do that with post-war? Can you do that with TBI, traumatic brain injury? And then it got to be, can you do that with these Title I school students? Can you do that here? Can you do that? And then my husband said, we got to teach other people how to do this because there's not enough joys and too much trauma. So that's when we did. And we're now, I think we've trained almost a thousand people globally. Wow. Yeah. And wow. here in Vegas, we have at least a hundred, maybe more, probably more. Um, and, and they're doing this work in their spaces for their uh, clients and counseling and, and, and everything. So 
it it it's helpful it's helpful if you're working with people who have experienced trauma and for you who are working with people who have experienced trauma because compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma is also a thing yeah and let's get into compassion fatigue one thing that i aim to do with this podcast is really to amplify messages of hope and i think your story is so powerful and one of the main reasons i wanted to have you on is because what you went through what you endured is something that i personally can't even place myself in a place to imagine it it's it's that 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 jarring for me and so for you to come out of that and then the loss of your son now results in thousands of people and over time probably millions right will be be impacted in a positive way and be able to live that is something that is powerful and worthy of of uh, amplifying for sure that's really the goal of this podcast is to spread messages of hope and let people know life is worth living. And I think that for someone that has gone through the type of trauma you've gone through, to live and then impact as many people as you are, it's incredible and we have to talk about it. So a moment ago, you mentioned compassion fatigue. That's big. A lot of people right now are experiencing that and may not have a name for it. So talk to us about that. Okay, so compassion fatigue and burnout are very, they seem very similar, right? So if you're at a job and you're just kind of burnt out on it and you, you maybe your, um, your work is, is, is suffering because you're just kind of burnt out on the whole monotony of it or you're resentful uh, at this job and they're not paying you properly and those things like that. So I wanted to separate that out because some people call uh, compassion fatigue burnout. And burnout is a resentment towards your job, right? It is a, a, you're sick and tired of that place, that job. Compassion fatigue is actually compassion, uh, lacking compassion for the people you serve, right? So the people that you're trying to help now, it's either resentment or this feeling of burden or this feeling of responsibility or this feeling of obsession with the mission and helping these people. And it's just all consuming and it takes you over, right? And at times you are, again, at that zero to 50 level and you're, you're you know, revving your engine at, at 45. And that's why we see so many, um, abrupt like situations like these like these um reactive situations either in the helping community so you've seen videos of like a doctor for some er and and they're just like shouting at a patient the patient's like i can't breathe and he's like ah you know because this doctor has probably got into that field to help people and became so consumed and it's and it's just you could see it on the doctor's body and face in this video that i'm thinking of that they um they just you know, they're just like, that's the straw that broke the camel's back in that moment, right? And you'll see this in other helping professions. And um, so how do we, you know, so that's what compassion fatigue is. Compassion fatigue is, um, is lacking self-care, um, right? Really, that's the cause of compassion fatigue. So to back up, to have some place to put it, if you're a talk therapist, you should have a talk therapist, right? Everyone who helps someone should have a helper because 
if you don't have somewhere to put that, if you don't have a fellowship, if you don't have um, that kind of support outside of that, not only are you taking on everyone else's stories, but you're taking on your own stories, right? And I say that on the shoulders because you'll see this in people with compassion fatigue, right? I'm gonna protect myself and um, I'm feeling very heavy, yeah. So it is a real problem. After one October, you know, after Route 91, what happens too is we saw that we saw a great deal of compassion fatigue. First of all, people were in a fight or flight state because they were on the scene or working with their own family members and the fallout across the, the town in, you know, specifically here in Vegas is what I'm speaking of was, was really obvious inside offices. We were called in to the coroner's office and the police department and the fire department to help people relieve that um, fight or flight uh, feeling in the body. Right. And because they were having a lot of like lateral violence, meaning that there was bullying peer to peer, you know, in the hospital and the, these departments and things like that, because this energy needs a place to go, right? Yeah. And if you don't have a way, an outlet for it, whether it's emotionally, verbally, or physically, or, you know, preferably all three, um, it's going to come out on the people that you work with or the people that you serve. So this is being recorded pre-election, so you know we don't know the outcome yet and all of that. But do you imagine that the combination of the COVID-19 pandemic, the stress of a very polarized election cycle, people losing their jobs, seeing lines that they've never seen for food, and of course, hospitals being overwhelmed, the list goes on, right? Do you think that people are experiencing compassion fatigue just because they have to be more compassionate towards their neighbor? It's mm. a really brilliant question. I think that there's, I think that there's two ways to look at that, right? And so perspective is everything. So first of all, to your point about the election, let's not forget about BLM. You know, this is another, polarizing like um, topic right now and and there's a lot of confusion on how people should interact and how we can come together and whether that's through the election or how do we still stay close to our families from COVID there's a lot of isolation going on right so we do have to be more compassionate I mean it, we're, it seems that we're being called to be more compassionate and to be more tolerant at minimum of other people's ideals, right? So distinction too, yeah. Yes, yes. At least at least be tolerant, right? So and when we do that, if we can encourage people to find curiosity over judgment, right? And to be curious and ask people's questions or at least lean in and um, find out their motives because we can all agree no matter what side anyone takes whether it's the election or BLM or mask or no mask or any of those things that we cannot just say all those people that believe that are idiots because guess what some of them are probably your friends and family so maybe if you ask somebody ask you know just start to be curious this will help us to be more um, connected right and, and so that connection is really important. But your point about compassion fatigue, right? So now we have to be, we are called to, 
called to be more compassionate. We are called to be more tolerant. We are called to be there for our neighbors and to maybe give more of ourselves um, and put more effort into our relationships. Good, 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 because we weren't being called to that. So there's a lesson in here and good. So let's look at what that is. Like, how do we smile with our eyes? How do I show you that I really care what you're saying when we're on Zoom? I lean into the camera. Learn, right? Evolve. That's, you know, I think that's part of what we're trying to do. So will we, some, some of us experience compassion fatigue? I think we will in those jobs that we always were anyways. And now, yes, it's amplified for sure. But the good news is, Will, that the tools are being offered now that people woke up when suicide rates were already awful, when opiates were just already being abused, when so many violent acts were happening in, in, in different agencies like the police and things like that. Those things were already happening and now they're amplified and people were like, okay, we can't wait anymore. We can't wait anymore. So now is the time and people stepped forward. So for example, me, what I do, usually there was never a budget. So these people who wanted to bring me into hospitals or coroner's office or, you know, to work with ER residents that are like, they're like kids, like what's happening? They're shook right now, right? And to work with them, then they were like, we don't have any um, budget. So then I would have to work with a nonprofit. We would look to find grant money and then we would, I would pay my teachers to go there. So it was really, that burden was all on the provider of the service. Now on the other end, now, just now, Will, like in the past few months, they're like, we have budget, can you come? That's can fantastic. You? So somebody woke up, somehow the money shook out. And I think that that's, that's happening. So yes, there's more compassion fatigue, yes. There, are, there is more isolation and divis divisiveness, but the tools, be, you know, what is uh, necessity is the mother of invention, that's happening. Yeah, I want to return to, to Black Lives Matter in just a moment, but you sparked something for me that I, I think is, is important to, to highlight, which is now people are investing in things that aren't new but are, are necessary. I, I, I love the idea that Marianne Williamson brought forth during her campaign, and she's a, a teacher I followed well before she entered politics, but she talks about the fact that right now we, we have a sick care system instead of a healthcare system, and we really need to invest in wellness. And I've seen, as radical as he is, Bill Maher on HBO. I mean, he, he's, he's hilarious, but he's so principled. And I think a lot of people miss that because it's a political-leaning show. But he's mm -hmm. principled, and he talks about the fact that we really have to, to choose where we're, we're investing. And it, without getting into his show, the, the point of the matter is, right now is our opportunity to really reset our priorities and to fund the things that matter to and promote peace instead of war and to promote health instead of just covering the symptoms of sickness and to give people a reason to live instead of the dignity of work how about the dignity of humanity the dignity of simple existence and then your work comes out of that so for you to be able to be compensated for this very meaningful work is something that should have been happening long ago but i am so grateful that it's happening in this moment so with that in mind returning to black lives matter I always say matter is the absolute minimum. 
Why is it now in this moment that Black Lives Matter has become such a huge movement? Well, you're talking to somebody born in 1964. So Black lives have always been in my media, you know what I mean? They've always been in the news for me. This has always been a principle just like women's rights where, you know, I come at a time of, of, uh, of uh, revolution, you know? So I, I appreciate finally that other people are starting to get woke and pay attention to this. Um, but I think, geez, you know, with social media and it's just so it's just so undeniable with the constant stream of look what just happened look what just happened look what just happened look what just happened do you see it now do you see it now right so we didn't have that in the you know when we only had growing up i know you're too young but i had there were like four tv channels and if they didn't put it on the news we or in the newspaper we didn't know about it right, right. so that's really important. I think that the exposure, the raising of awareness, I think that that's why that, and I, I think that these issues in the um, police department have always existed to some level, but I think it's exaggerated now. And I'm gonna say something now that I've never said publicly, so um, feel free to not share this, but I, you know, I work with, so I have to be really careful because these are also like, these are people that I serve, right? So I serve all the first responders from the, from the police, from the 911 call center, the first of the first responders to funeral directors, the last of the first responders, literally everyone in between. I serve all of them, right? But when it comes to the police, I think it's partially their training and partially because they are constantly in a state of fight or flight. And they're, they're, they have been given no resource um, to, to, to uh, counter that feeling, right? And they were one of the places that still struggles for budget to bring people like us in, right? Um, we still do it and we find a way. And there are some amazing people working with the police department here to, to, that understand that, that know that this is a reaction, that these officers are reacting, not responding. Um, and that it, it is a body reaction and, and the mind is not involved, right? Because I want to dive into that because the reacting versus, versus responding, I think is so critical. When I look at even the resistance to the idea of Black Lives Matter, I see that as a trauma response. I see that as a protective mechanism, you know, back the blue. Well, we're not saying don't, don't support police officers. There are Black police officers. What we're saying is Black Lives Matter. That should be a universal agreement in this day and age, but it's not. So my question in this is, do you see some of this as a trauma response as far as the resistance to the movement with police having to dehumanize other humans in order just to sleep at night, to, to see the things that they see, to walk in and they're the first ones to see a, a murder scene. They just responded to domestic violence. They just saw a child abuse. All of these things that are incredibly triggering and then they have to go home to their families. Do you see the, the reason they're, they're so reactive, so quick to, to resort to shooting uh, all of this as a trauma response? I do. I 100% I think that that is exactly what's happening. I don't think it's, 
I listen, I'm certain that there are bad people in that profession. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I do not think that at this level that all these situations that are happening are because they're bad people on the job. I think that it is systemic in, in almost like a diseased way with PTSD being at the root, or at least if you don't want to diagnose it as PTSD, at least a trauma response, like you said. 100%, I think that uh, it's a conditioning, right? It is working again, the opposite in, the, in a different direction with neuroplasticity to say, these people are, are, uh, are violent. Right. And so the brain and the brain keeps seeing it and the body believes it um, for whatever reason, if that's the neighborhood that they're doing calls in, if they've had past experience with that, because truly, you know, this will we don't have anything to base our present ideas on than our past experience. Right. So what is their past experience and why does it have them believing this? I don't think it came from their training. Partially, yes. Yeah, don't be using those chokeholds. You know what I mean? Like that needs to be fixed 100%. We know that that needs to be fixed. But we also we also need to help them release their day, right? So why is it that firefighters aren't as violent when they're exposed to all the same things? I have an, I have an idea. I have a theory. Firefighters are, in, are housed together like a brothership, like a brotherhood, like a fellowship. And my brother's a firefighter. My father was a captain, right? So my brother's a captain for here in Vegas, both of them. And so I grew up around firefighters. And what I know is they're close like family. And when one has a rough night because he pulled a baby out of a, name it, right? Because this happens. Um, the others come around and there is a relief. There is a, a helping, there is a support, there is a place for them to put it. They're not alone, right? But uh, they, the police don't have that, right? They're on shift, they shift out, they're off. And they go straight home. And now they're worried about their family, they're shutting the blinds, they're locking the doors, you know, they're sitting with their back, you know, so that they can see, they're not sleeping, they have insomnia, they're not eating well, and they're trying to compensate with caffeine and alcohol and, you know, and again, I'm not talking shit about the police. I'm telling you that this is a natural way for a human being to react in this circumstance. I'm How? So that. It's absolutely natural. And I, I think of even the, the broader spectrum here. So you mentioned you don't think it's part of their training. I, I would add to that and say it's inherent in their training from the time they're, they're born. Because if you look at the movies, how are African-Americans portrayed? You've got boys in the hood. And that was a black director. So you can't say, well, they are portraying black people that way. No, black people are, are showing these things. So you look at the, the gangster rap and all of this, this combined. So then when a, a police officer encounters a black person, that fight or flight is automatically triggered because what did they re recall? What, what did they see growing up as images of black people? Danger violence so you have to subdue so i think it's all tied together but the question that i always ask is what kind of world do we live in where this is even possible 
what have we allowed to take root in our structures, in our culture, that continues to allow these ideas to, to take forth? Instead of highlighting someone like a President Obama and, and First Lady Michelle Obama, who are exceptional examples, we promote those that are, are, are wretched, for lack of a better term. I, I think back to my childhood with the Huxtables, you know, Heathcliff Hustle and, and Claire and all of that, the, that family, the, the Cosby Show was phenomenal. But a lot of people said, oh, they're sellouts. Oh, that's not really the Black experience. And I'm like, well, now my dad's not a, a doctor, my mom's not a lawyer, but they're both professionals. And I'm like, well, that's kind of my experience. Like, that's what, that's my childhood. That's how we lived. So for me, I have internalized racism. And a lot of people don't think Black people can be racist. No, I absolutely disagree. I, I think Black people can be racist because that's just the way society has become. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm so appreciative of what you shared. I just have to share a thought on what you just said because I thought you put that so brilliantly and I appreciate the way that you speak on this subject because it is a terrifying subject. I mean, let's be honest, especially for a woman, like I'm 56 years old, right? So this isn't a conversation that's been comfortable or easy, to, you know, in my life, right? So I'm just now having these conversations and they're so, so important that I refuse not to have them even though I mess up all the time because I am unaware, right, of the epigenetics of generations before me, meaning that, that listen, you can inherit behaviors and ideas just as you can inherit brown eyes, right? So we, and so I mess up all the time. I want more people. So I would speak to people like me who know that it's scary. And then this is the, this is the, conversation behind closed doors right now is just don't say anything if you don't know what to say because you're going to get in trouble well that's not going to change shit so step in say something mostly ask questions right listen with be, being open that what you might hear could change you right curiosity over judgment what you said curiosity right. over judgment that's my that yes and that's a recipe for life right and inclusion is the solution, right? So I say those two things all the time. How can we include people? How can we really include people though, Will? Not just an invitation, not just like, well, they're there. No, it is the responsibility of people who happen to be born white because we didn't choose it, okay? This wasn't an, you know, we didn't, listen. So it is the responsibility of people who happen to be born white to lift people who did not happen to be born white into white privilege. That is our responsibility because there is no way, no other way for them to be lifted into it, right? I mean, yes, it, 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 there are, but what I think people don't understand what equity really means, right? Equitability over equality. Equitability is saying all things aren't just even. You started in a, a, a hole just based on the color of your skin the moment you were born. So I need to pull you up out of there. Now we even, right? Now we can go together. But I think, I, I think there's a underlying fear of lack in the, can I just, you said earlier, how do we, how do we live in a world like this? It's not a world, it's a country. Our country is the worst at this. That's a shame, yeah. right? We are educated people. 
We're supposed to be evolved. What are we doing? And so if we can begin there and start to agree that there, first of all, agree there's a problem. <laughs> that's, that's a big one right there. That's a frustration for me. Wow, are you saying that this is all made up? Right, what are you doing, right? Agree that there's a problem. Agree that you can be part of the solution. Step in, be brave, ask questions, be curious, and believe that there's enough. There is enough for all of us, right? There is enough for all of us. I think that's a great place to leave it. We've got just a moment or two left in the podcast, but I, I want to, to speak to that woman who just went through divorce and is now raising her children on her own to that father who just lost his job and is now having to face a family that he doesn't know how to feed to that mother that just lost their child was stillborn, whatever the case may be, to the police officer that just got harassed for simply doing her job. What are some tools that they can take with them to release, to move out of that, that heightened state and just, just chill? Mm -hmm. Well, if it's okay with you, I can take you through just like five minutes or so and the listeners can join us. You don't have to have a yoga mat. You don't have to have on stretchy clothes. Um, you can just be where you are and, and just do a little bit of this, what we call the self-regulation, the very basis, the platform that Tri was built on. And I want to teach it, if you let me demonstrate it for people to experience and I want to teach it in a way that they can take it with them. So even if they never come to a class or hear my voice again, they'll, they'll be able to use these tools. Love it. Let's do it. Okay. So just sitting comfortably in your chair or on the floor, wherever you are, just allowing your hands to rest on your legs or knees. Find your feet against the floor, or if you're sitting on the floor, maybe your legs are cross-legged. Most important is to be comfortable. Let your gaze drop towards the floor. And begin with me now. So I'm gonna take you through self-regulation. We're not gonna bend or twist or pin our foot behind our ear. All we're gonna do is work with our breath and our mind and our body to find ourselves present in our space. This is called self-regulation, completely based in science and psychology. You can take one of these tools or all of these tools together, whatever works for you, with you throughout your life from this day forward. First is called grounding. Grounding is just what it sounds like. Begin to notice everywhere you're making contact with the ground or your chair. Notice your feet, your sit bones, the backs of your legs resting against the earth and your chair. This is an exercise in mindfulness. Mindfulness is a real catchy word right now. All it means is to notice. Slow down and notice. So we begin to notice every point of contact our feet are making with the earth like tiny thermal imprints or magnets to steel. 
and the weight and heat of our sit bones pressing down against the chair or the earth as the earth lifts and supports us. And when we pause to notice our connection with the earth, we send a clear signal to mind and body, all is well, I am solid, I am connected, I am supported, I am stable, I am strong, I am peaceful, I am present. Notice now the hands resting on the legs or knees, the fingers slightly separated and the hands resting as though every tiny muscle in the fingers and palms and wrists were warm and released, like a warm, wet cloth resting across our legs. Notice any resonance or heat or energy between the hands and legs. And when we pause to notice our hands, palms down, resting in this way, we send another signal to mind and body no reason to point a finger or make a fist. I am peaceful. I am present. All is well. Gazing down now, the chin drops towards the chest without pushing. The shoulder blades begin to draw together behind us as we feel the sternum opening shining the light of our heart up towards our face. And we gaze down softly at the feet or the floor, and we begin to notice ourselves safe in our space. This is called orientation, orienting ourselves in our space. So we find four colors or four textures in our field of vision, finding ourselves safe in our space, noticing the color and texture of the flooring, our shoes or feet, our clothes or skin. The brow unfurrows as the eyelids smooth and we begin to notice the way the light reflects off the flooring and is absorbed into our skin, the colors and textures, smooth and shiny or fluffy and soft. And when we gaze down, and find ourselves safe in our space in this way, we send another signal to mind and body. No reason to look about. I am safe. I am peaceful. I am present. And now finding our center. This is called centering. Many times post-trauma or through crisis, we find ourselves off-center. Off-center can feel like it does when you notice yourself saying or doing something that you didn't plan to do. Sometimes in a heated argument, sometimes in a traumatic situation, reacting to violence or danger. Off-center, as though we're watching ourselves perform. Finding ourselves on center, back in center, is as easy as engaging our pelvic floor, those muscles we would 
engage to stop the flow of urine and pressing our navel towards our spine as though we were trying to get our belly button to kiss our backbone. Beginning maybe to feel some heat beneath the belly button there, igniting a flame, stoking the fire, feeling the heat in the gut, switching on that heated vacuum so that it draws down the chatter from between our ears into the gut and it's churned up and burned up and swept away by our own breath. I am centered, I am peaceful, I am present. Notice how the body begins to believe what the mind sees as we burn up the chatter of the mind, as we find ourselves grounded and solid, as we bring ourselves centered. The shoulders begin to melt away from the ears, the long muscles heated and releasing, the jaw drops and falls slack, the tongue floats thick and heavy, the brow unfroze, the lips unpursed, and we breathe softly in and out from the nose, with the lips barely touching. Breath is our final resource today in self-regulation. Breath is presence. Breath can find us here now. Many times, if we find ourselves stuck in yesterday or lost in tomorrow, we can bring ourselves present by asking ourselves one simple question. Am I inhaling or exhaling right now? And then answering that question with our breath. Ask yourself that question now because breath happens now, not tomorrow or yesterday. And answer that question with your breath. And when you inhale, hear the words, I am inhaling. In through the nose as it sweeps behind the eyes, cooling, releasing behind the brow, sweeping through the scalp into the back of the neck, making more space, expanding between the vertebra of the neck, sweeping back up the neck, through the scalp, behind the brow, and out the nose, taking with it bits of debris, notions that do not serve us. And with every exhale, hear the words, I am exhaling. Taking a moment now to scan our bodies. Body scan is a way to bring about presence and release the notions of the day that have clung to our body and mind. So I want you to visualize that you have a beam of light over the top of your head, like that beam of light that would scan a document or make a copy on a copy machine or like a lightsaber if you're a nerd like me. And that light is humming and resonating in a beautiful color, a secret color only you know, the color of your hopes and your wishes and your dreams. And this light now begins to move and scan the body and everywhere this light moves, you feel a release, an unwind, an unravel, a letting go. The light moves through the scalp as it warms and tingles and glows each hair. The brow unfurrows, the eyes sink a little into the skull as the cheeks become rosy, the lips dewy. The light moves through the jaw, those tiny muscles in the jaw release as the jaw falls slack and the vocal cords begin to release, unwind, warm and glow moving through the shoulders, through the collarbones, weaving in and out of each rib, inflating the lungs, moving and playfully dancing this light between each vertebra, 
shining up and down that spinal cord, crackling and popping around the brain. The, the nerve endings reignited, happy hormones secreted, sweeping down through the gut now, working to detox, heal, and repair our internal organs, liver, kidneys, digestion, reproduction, pancreas, spleen, gallbladder, all going to work, crackling, popping, dissolving what isn't necessary, rebuilding what is called for, heating through the hips and pelvis, moving through the thighs, repairing through the knees, warming through the calves, shins, cooling in the feet now, tiny beams of light glow from each finger and each toe and behind our eyes, nose, mouth, ears, throat, and that ever-loving heart shining, growing, clack, crackling with static electricity and a childlike enthusiasm. You see the light begin to dissolve any old crustaceans on the heart as we feel a tickle and the pitter-patter in the center of our heart connecting heart to vocal cords, maybe feeling a childlike giggle as a smile draws from behind our eyes, nose, and mouth as we gaze down or close our eyes, feeling ourselves bathing in this light, soaking in this glory. We begin to hear the words, the two most powerful words we can ever speak come to us in the center of our heart and throat, I am, I am. Whatever we follow those words with will follow us. What word do you choose to follow those words with today? Not trying to fake it, not trying to bullshit ourselves, just trying to remind ourselves of something that's always been true, but we may have forgotten. Hear your heart speaking to you now. I am powerful. I am kind. I am generous. I am curious. I am inclusive. I am tolerant. I am compassionate. What is it for you today? Hear your I am. And on your next inhale, hear the words I am, follow them with your word as you lift the chin, fluttering the eyes open, coming back into the room. Inhale as we look up and reach up for the ceiling, rolling the shoulders back and down. Exhale as we place the palms together, pulling nothing but happiness to the center of our heart and let the hands rest. Namaste. That was fantastic. Oh my goodness. I love, love, love that. And it's something that just takes you out of whatever's happening and places you within yourself to that place of peace and calm. And I love the I am. That piece for me is so powerful. Whatever follows that follows you. Incredible. So I want to thank you for joining the podcast today. And how do people connect with you? What's the best way? Um, the best way is, well, I'm really easy to find on social media. I'm the try method. Um, my website is the trymethod.com. I'm Joyce Bosen. Um, my direct line is on all of my social media and on my website. So I'm easy to call. I'm easy to email. Um, Joyce at the trymethod.com as well. So that's it. Really easy to find me.
Wonderful. And for those looking to practice that try method that Joyce was so gracious to lead us through, you'll have a separate link that you can click on and enjoy the full experience. So it's something that you can certainly grab hold to and know that you can live. Life is worth living. As Joyce's story shows us, you can go through something that seems to be life ending and find out on the other side, there's so much life to live. So Joyce, thank you again for joining us on Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. And for our viewers and listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. When we have marginalized communities and their stigma around their jobs, they're further pushed to the fringes of society and therefore a small issue can turn into a major one. <laughs>